so I want to start this podcast a little bit differently. Um, I want to start it with a quote uh, by um, a philosopher known as Edwin Starr, who once said, War, huh? Yeah? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, say it again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nothing. One more time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nothing. Say it again now. Okay, well, is it, the, the, the point of that song and that, that whole reference was the idea of the fruitility of war. Like mm-hmm. the, the point of throwing, um, at the time, young men into a grinder that was being organized by older blokes in, uh, with way too many stars and stripes on their, their border. But I think there's another part of war which... Um, a lot of time people kind of miss or don't really recognize. And that's its contribution that war makes to the STEM field, to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm-hmm. War has been one of the biggest founders and like funders of research and technology that we use today, which I thought is kind of weird once you start looking into it. And so me and the boys, we've all had a look around at different technologies and things that have been developed directly out of war. Mm-hmm. Isn't that right, gentlemen? Very much so, very much so. Because I feel like... When you think of war, I kind of think of like the atrocities and I think of the bad things, obviously the Holocaust, the tortures, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And like the unfortunate fact of the, of the matter is like those people that were tortured and were, you know, held captive were also experimented on by, you know, very vile people. But mm. those vile people ended up being like finding things and through very bad like Japan, Japan 731 is a classic example of yeah. that but yeah or, or the guy, terrible or was the guy um, like Dr. Death from uh, Auschwitz um, uh, I can't uh, remember his Joseph name Joseph something Joseph Mengels I know who you're talking about yes yeah, Mengels and, and, so his like experimentations and stuff were terrible but it kind of furthered the advancement of like cancer research and all, mm. and uh and also like psychological warfare. And that's only one faction of it too, right? That's just the bio side of it. You know, the amount of like money we've had spent on war, if we had that same amount of funding put in to like things in general, then it would be crazy how far we'd advance in the STEM field. And that's where I thought I would kick off with... Yeah, so we're definitely focusing on maybe not the the uh, like not, the tortured one. No, we're not to clarify. That was more of an example of just yeah. like the money that went into it. And yeah. Instead of being going into warfare, yeah. should have gone into maybe you know housing the homeless, poverty, that sort of thing to kind of re-establish. Uh, yeah, yeah. doesn't like, really fit you know, with the nationalism agenda though. Yeah, but what we'll look at is not really the like outcome of war itself, but. Things that wouldn't have been researched unless countries wanted to win a war, mm-hmm. which yeah. has been yeah. a massive driving factor. Probably still would have been research, but re- not research as fast. Research as fast, yeah. yeah. The, at, it, at a slower pace. Yeah, yeah. It, generally speaking, today in modern technology, we don't research something unless it makes money. So unless you see like a profitable margin on these things, um, science technology isn't really uh, a approach. Imagine like Shark Tank, right? They come in and say, all right, how, much, how many units are you making? How much does it cost? How much mm. money can you make? That is effectively how research and funding for new projects is designed today, which is, I think, a little subverse. So if, if you want to, and that's not to say things won't get developed, they're just not going to develop as quickly as you might need. Look at the past two years. I'm not going to say that specific example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if necessity requires it, something comes way more valuable, money is thrown, mm. thrown at it. And look, it fucking worked <laughs> but so what we're going to talk about today um and I'll, I'll throw over to james in just a second is how like investment into science to win a war actually created something which was much bigger than war itself so james take us off with our first uh, technology
Yeah, so like I said, I wanted to kick this off with the biggest and most profound discovery from warfare that is the reason, gentlemen, that you are alive today, the reason that your kids will be able to have a good oh, life, and yeah. the reason you can put food on the table. I know, right? Yep. The reason you won't starve. Gentlemen, it, this process is known as the Haber-Bosch process. Oh, every year 11, you might, chemistry student just had a headache. <laughs> you might be sitting there thinking, oh, one, I've ever studied this, I don't want to fucking hear it, or two, a Haber-what now? And the thing is... It does. It's, it's very boring on the chemistry point of view. And even on the chemical guy, I'm not going to go into it, right? I'm not going to go into the chemistry side of it. I just want to go into its effects. Mm. So, right back in the 1870s, there used to be the beautiful substance known as bird shit or more scientifically known as guano. Mm. And guano mm. was used pretty much to make fertilizers, right? Nitrogen fertilizers helps plants grow. Um, the problem is it wasn't in high supply. So, it was actually very expensive. I think four pounds of guano was worth one pound of gold, which wow. was very, very cool. Like a lot, very so, so when people say it's worth shit back in the day, that's actually worth a lot. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> that's worth a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how much shit can this gold buy? <laughs> wow, that bread, it was a shitload. <laughs> that's a lot of... Anyway, sorry, sorry Jimmy. Sorry. And then as we moved into the periods of war, people tried to synthesize this you know, artificially. So they tried to mix gases together, lower them down below the sea to try and get the pressure of the gases to make this fertilizer, which didn't, oh, right. didn't work because they found out they needed temperature as well. So they started using chili and saltpeter to do the to do the same thing. Um, actually, well, they're using that for explosives. So this is where the war talk comes into it. Is London was the biggest user of saltpeter, I believe, or the biggest exporter of it, mm-hmm. um, or the biggest importer, I believe. Chile was a, a massive exporter, so e- everyone used it. It was great. It had a high content of nitrogen, and Germany was getting amongst it. But then, as World War One kicked off, yeah. London cut off their supply, so Chile weren't given. Germany, no more salt pit, no more explosives. So they're like, fuck, how do we now make explosives? How do we win the war? What do we yeah. do? So old mate called Fritz Haber, who's known as the father of chemical warfare or the man who killed millions but saved billions, yeah. right? He goes, hmm, that theory of mixing gases together to make fertilizer or explosives, what the chemicals you need to do it, I'm going to go to my lab and you know try and test that out now. So he went to his lab and figured out how to do it and eventually was known as the Haber-Bosch process because Fritz Haber one started the process and Carl Bosch was the one who actually perfected it. It was like, no, let's actually get this right. And literally what it is, is mixing gases together to make the feed that goes into your fertilizers. Um, but they used it for explosives. So this is why he was called the man who killed billions, but saved mm. billions. Now, what's amazing about this process is it caused the biggest population jump. Now, as STEM you know, nerds, we often say correlation doesn't equal causation. But if you look at a graph of the population growth and you look at where it peaks, it literally is right after the Haber-Bosch process was found. And it jumped from 1.6 billion in 1900 to today, 7 billion people. So obviously right now, it's the reason the population Mm. boom happened. And the reason today we can put food on our table is because fertilizer is so diverse and it's so ample in in supply because of this process still used today in in such high amounts yeah to back up james's point so the haber bosch process just google this one um from this is from the compost gardener one third of human population is fed based on the haber bosch process so all that food coming onto your table one third of it is come from one one chemical calculation one kind of process to create this food and at the time i mean like military and war uh, in World War One, it was all about the new industry of warfare. 
But yep. before they were using horses and swords, now they're using guns. But the thing is, they invested so much into guns, like artillery pieces, that they're still being drawn by horses. Like, they're still, like, just developing the first tank, but they're building artillery pieces that can be taken on trains. The only way they could be moved is on train tracks. So they were, like, pushing for this. So to have your feedstock for war being explosives, now constrained, and this push to make, oh, let's just make it ourselves. Fuck it. Yeah. We can do it faster and better and then don't need to worry about any of our ships being sunk they, with all they the knew that, They knew the theory was there to make yeah. it. They knew it had been tried and they're like, oh, we're going to perfect this. Um, which then they were like, oh, well, we now have ammonia, which makes ammonium nitrate for fertilizer. Let's now use it for our food because we've we found yeah. a way to do it synthetically. Oh, fuck. The population is suddenly 7 billion yeah, people. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Well, I guess once the, the bombs stopped dropping and uh, the artillery shells stopped raining down, they went... Well, we can make ammonia at high demand at lower cost anywhere in the world. Why don't we just do that? And then, yeah, it's just a, like a weird symptom of this uh, need to win a war has fed the entire population. It actually has a lot of issues now environmentally. But there's there's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's another... That's the whole industrial revolution there. Like, it was so beautiful in its time, but now it's like, oh, this actually has bad long-term yeah. effects. There's, there's like a beauty to the ignorance, I find. Because it was like, how quick and big can we make things go with no regard? So actually, even today, this is still off topic. So what they noticed was in England, there's a lot of smokestacks back in the industry. If you look through all like the like Manchester and like um, Wood-on-Stoke and whatnot, in massive industry towns, um, they realized that the smoke was killing their workers. So their solution was to build taller stacks for the coal plants. And so the smoke just went higher and then the wind would take it off. Then suddenly people in North France started dying because <laughs> all the smoke came coming down. Because, again, that's the thing is, oh, it's affecting my business. Sorry, Pierre. Fuck it. Let's just fuck over the French and uh. the Swedish. Like, it was this weird thing. But, yeah, it, there's, a, there's the Industrial Revolution and that war that came to it was uh was awful and magnificent in the same regard yeah but you could write a book my man i i there's i think there's a lot of books a little one in the industry you, you to be just honest write yeah. a book really? on your philosophies yeah mate, just a pure oxymoron yeah <laughs> no you should write a book you should like uh, write a marcus aurelius style like memoirs some weird philosophy it was like if you're walking by a tree don't kick it yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll also write it in classic greek for an italian general it was very weird for the man to do yeah. that but yeah. here we are anyway sp- over to you patty what is your um invention that d- derived from military investment what is one thing that we all have and all lose uh bread uh, my mind, my marbles, uh, uh, yeah, sanity, cigarette lighters, sanity, love, my keys, uh, my wallet, my phone. will to live, will to live. Uh, well, you're all you're all correct, but you're also not correct. Yeah, uh, open-ended answer, question. <laughs> uh, my answer was blood. Blood. Oh, uh, um, we all, oh yeah, okay. We I'll all have that. it, and we all lose it at one point. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I yeah. know oh, more than others, some more than us, but we're not going to go there. Yeah, but too one, many cuts in your legs. But mate. obviously, during the warfare, the one thing that was sort of Obviously, the casualty of it is obviously death, and the worst part is, especially when, especially when we were trying to like you know, warfare back in the eighteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, when the the medical, uh, like the I'm trying I'm trying to get my words here, sorry guys, but when the medical uh, experiences wasn't up to scratch, so obviously if you got stabbed or shot at that time, it was almost like a guarantee. It death. was just it was just like a let's wing it, let's see what we can do to help this person out. Exactly. To the best of our ability. So obviously mm. with World War One, the artillery getting a bit more advanced, a lot of the even long before that in the eighteen hundreds and that's the, the wars in America 
and in France and Germany before World War I even happened, they were trying to find a way to save people through blood transfusions and giving blood to other people. So the goal mm. is how can we transfer blood from one person to another without the blood expiring or going off? And the two things that you need... Like milk. Yeah, exactly. A little bit like blood is like milk. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe from a coagulation. Multiple different, yeah, yeah. just like blood, there's multiple different types of milk. Yeah, yeah. That's a good that's point. blood. There's almond yeah. blood. Yeah. yeah, yeah almond. Like, what's your blood type? Oh, almond it's... soy. She's stabbing almonds. Sorry. Oh way God. off topic. Oh, no. It was like, I like my blood the way I like my coffee. Red. What sort of coffees do you have? Geez. He's putting uh, saps from trees in there. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I, I, it's a weird mixture of honey and uh, milk. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, the two things that you need to kind of keep the ba- the, sim- the simple version of keeping blood non-expired or making it last longer is you need to refrigerate it, mm-hmm. and you need to add a blood thinner. So that's called uh, anti anticoagulant. Thank you, you Matt. Oh. You're, you're fucking on the ball. I love it. That's his but, field. But- <laughs> And that was that. That's easier said than done, but it was probably the easier process than compared to storing it. You had to store blood at a at a minimum six degrees. So I think six, well, six degrees is six so degrees anything Celsius. lower than six degrees. Six degrees is ideal, but I feel like you know, give or take one or two. So I feel like that would have been fine. So and obviously, you need to find a find a way to store that. And people were trying to figure out a long a long time before World War One. However, the one guy that kind of figured it out and started implementing it during World War One was a Canadian lieutenant called Lawrence Bruce Robertson, and he was incredibly instrumental. And he was the first guy to mm. really utilize and test in the field uh blood transfusions and obviously that was through storing blood and one of the first people he tried to test on was a guy with shrapnel all over his body so a lot of blood loss a lot of blood loss i don't know if it worked or not but apparent but through his tests he published a paper he sent it to the uh, british medical journal and like Mm. the british board that kind of says yes or no and they were like you know hey boss you fucking legend. Let's do yeah. this. So they started implementing all over the uh, like the eastern front, western front sort of region. Yeah, and mm. it's because of that that is how we got our first our first blood bank in 1921. Jesus, what blows me away is this is like World War One in 1921, and talking about trying to store something at six degrees. Refrigeration wasn't that big back then. No, that is very, incredible. It, it's very difficult. I feel like the way I. I have no idea how they would have done that. But mm. from what I think is like the, uh, if you look at the old West and like pictures that were taken in yeah. the 1800s, the way they would store cool, uh, store things at a certain temperature, they would just get a giant brick of ice, literally like yes. the size of a car. Yeah. And that's how they would store, like keep things cold and they would just chip away. Okay, we need this amount of ice for this day. Yeah, yeah it's simple mass transfer. Very, yeah, because very obviously if there's like a big enough ice block, it will take longer to melt. Mm, I think yeah. that's kind of this, like, maybe that's what they were thinking or maybe maybe that's also how they invented the first Esky. Who knows? Yeah. Actually, if you guys have time, Google how the Amish make ice cream. It's fucking incredible. Isn't that the way they also, like, make butter? It's kind of, but the, the ice, they, they take it in winter and it lasts all through summer. Mm. And then they use that and they just put, like, thermal blankets on top of it and, like, just hay, put in a... a barn outside of sunlight and then later they use that ice and then like put it around like the cream to make the ice cream really interesting uh, stuff I, yeah i know mm. what we're yeah, talking yeah about d- definitely google but that one back to your like um topic patty it's weird how we have this spectrum of things how like mine was really indirect and yours was direct like it was done during the war it was and it, and, and its purpose actually fulfilled its need whereas ours mm. was like explosive to fertilize yours was blood bank to blood bank yeah um, and it was expanding it was all- and already 
proven theory pretty much and it's also on the point that you guys made where the a lot of these uh initiatives were done specifically because of war and they weren't really given a second thought beforehand this one it was thought of a lot of the time beforehand because obviously we don't want people dying if they like unnecessarily if they don't need to especially if it's just like mm. you know a cut or it's like something as simple as oh i can, i want to give blood to my brother who is you yeah. know with the same type same family same genes but he's losing blood i want to give it to him right it's now it's the pressure to get us to do it like yeah. i mean cancer mm. treatment's one example chemotherapy and radiation work to an extent yeah. but it's not an infectious if cancer was infectious and it destroyed people they're like we need to find the cure mm. for cancer let's put and there's so many yeah. different cancers, not just one one meets all solution. So it's the mm. pressure that really drives us. Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically, that's the that was kind of the way that blood banks started was because of World War, because of the World War One and the need for uh, saving lives. That then instituted a weird, uh, weird influence amongst the medical profession, being like, "Hey, we can actually do this. Yeah. Like, we, if we store it at a certain temperature, if we." If we use it within this time frame, if we add the right amount of plasma, it's mm. going to be all right. And because and and you know, thank God for the British Red Cross, honestly. Like because of them, we like there's people that can give blood and you know save someone they don't haven't even met. So yeah. I I'm probably going to be going to the blood bank, and I highly recommend everyone. Like I know everyone doesn't like needles, and it's like oh they got they got shit to do. But you know what? It takes you an hour. Do it in the morning. Do it in the afternoon after work. My my concern is being lightheaded after doing it. Just on from... it, that they force you to stay there for twenty minutes after yeah. giving blood, just to make sure that you're okay. You get a free milkshake. Okay. Yeah. So, so increase go... your blood sugar. Yeah, and then there's like like sweets and like some just, sausage rolls around. I just remember I got a blood test one day, and they took way too much blood because the pathologist started having a conversation midway through, and I was really lightheaded. And then as I'm driving out of the car park, I dropped the clutch because I like fainted. And scratch the hole. Like you see it, you know how yeah. I got that yellow on my bumper bar? It was because of that. I just Damn. passed out in the car park. And I'm just like, now that's turned me off getting a, doing a blood um, transfusion. But I still want to do it for the greater greater good. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it. I All mean, right. Put it, put it in the calendar. Group blood sesh. Let's go. Uh, yeah, we can, we'll take a photo of it and post it on social media somewhere. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So speak, you said something before about chemotherapy and cancer. I'm pretty sure. Isn't one of your topics, Sean, on that? It is. So, um... We we kind of talk about uh, as a fantastic segue actually, Patty. You're welcome. Uh, You're I was welcome. I was not even expecting it. Um, so one of the things that I thought was one of the biggest inventions was the first instance of big science. And big science is when there's like a massive collaborative effort in the science field, and of course it had to be military funded. And yep. um, effectively, you had a massive influence on the medical field, especially with dealing with cancers and radiotherapy. Can you guys uh, have a guess or a stab at what event or what... Is Christopher Nolan making a movie about this? I don't know the movie films. Oppenheimer. IMD, Patty. Ooh, possibly. Yeah. Okay. Is it the opposite of hot? It is actually incredibly hot. So it's no, not... is, is the <laughs> war that cold. started the opposite of hot? No, not that one. No, okay. no, no. Okay. So um, uh, this device is hot. Thermo hot. Nuclear Thermonuclear bombs. nuclear bomb. So... The the big science project I'm talking about is the Manhattan Project, which, mm. um, for those who are not aware, it was really what ended the war. Now, Germany had surrendered this point. Russia was about to invade Japan. Well, they were like two weeks away from invading Japan. And then America needed to finish the war then and there, so they didn't capture it. So they dropped two bombs on it. Uh, I mean... There's like give and tell. There's not that much detail on it. But the was, idea... I thought it was two... I thought it was, was one bombs. bomb and then... 
they were going to drop a second bomb, or was it they dropped two bombs and then they were going to drop a third? They they dropped. I think one. it's the latter. Yeah, they, I believe. Yeah, they were they were going to drop a third. They had they had spares, master. but they didn't want to drop more than they had to. They yeah. wanted to limit because the, they knew how bad this was. They knew what they were doing, and even Eisenhower, up until the day he had to sign it off, he was not comfortable. They had it built for a while, and they were just waiting. Is can we? It was a last resort. Yeah. And and I, and I I think towards the end of World War Two. Um, the hearts of soldiers weren't really in it mm. as much at the start. Everyone wanted it to be over. Yeah, I mean mm. the fierce fighting through the like the the canals and um, Iwo Jima and Guam and all these spots just to get yeah. to Japan. The fiercest there. They said, imagine this on the mainland, and they yeah. said, how many soldiers do we need? About two million to to drop airdrop into no. Japan because there's no way we can land no. a subtle, especially subtle. by that. Especially since it's the back end of the war, everyone mm. is now so disillusioned. Like uh, if you guys have time, mm. definitely. In your spare time, try and go on Netflix and watch the remake of All, All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm, it's like yeah, about the German it. side and literally everyone's so fucking pumped up. It's like, boys, we're going to war. Let's do it. Let's do it. And literally the final shot is just a guy just like mm. so shaken and shell-shocked yeah. that it's like, just kill me. Yeah, just kill me. The reality of war is, is shocking and awful. And very, we're very lucky with that we're not going through that at all because no. we are peak age of like, if, yeah. a, if we were then like that time, we would all be fucking fighting. Well, okay. interesting. So the, this bomb, right, this deployment of a mass device is actually probably the reason we don't see war on the same scale that you gentlemen uh, kind of see in the documentaries. See in the movies yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. We have skirmishes and conflicts, sure. Small, like, armed um, things even now. But be- we've never seen full-out world war because of the nuclear bomb. And that's another kind of topic to it, to this idea of if two major players with nuclear devices go to war, mad. Mutually assured destruction, everyone blows up, the planet actually moves out of orbit with the number of bombs that are dropped, we all die. Yeah. Every, no one loses. No one wins. Hmm. Both, it, it's just, it's, it's the end. It's, it's the end yeah, result. Yeah. It's like, all right, if you can't win, yeah. I, I can't win, you can't win either. Yeah, we yeah. all fucking go I mean that. Together. I mean, there's, that, that is one of the things that nuclear bombs have potentially brought, but they also made it pretty bad. That's actually to another topic that our next technology that I'll get into this one. But for the time being, I'm talking about nuclear bombs, but specifically its impact on nuclear medicine mm-hmm. and radiotherapy. Because without that understanding of the atom, which was required to develop the bomb and to kill um, so many people. Do you know actually about the little, little fact? 90 to 166,000 people died in the first four months of the Hiroshima bombing. Then another 200,000 in the next five years because of the radiation poisoning. Mm. It was wild, right? That's, so they, they're sort of like Chernobyl because... Like, yeah. and, and similar to Fukushima, right? Is Fukushima mm. similar? Not, to- not to the same extent. Fukushima was well more contained than this. This is rampant, rampant radiation leakage. Um, but like the the death that was caused is absolutely disgusting and awful, and I hate to see that just people are a number on a sheet. Um, but what happened after that has saved millions, right? So chemotherapy, following the bombing in in 1945, we have so many developments. There were 40 noticeable developments in the next 30 years after the bombs dropped, after understanding the atom. 1946, the following year, they, they developed a thing called the atomic cocktail with iodine-131, uh, a uh, radioactive isotope, um, and it cured someone with thyroid cancer in 1946. Like, that was the first case of curing cancer with radiotherapy. 1947, radionuclides started being developed at Harwell in the UK. Um, phosphorus-32 now started to detect um, brain tumors in 1949. So many things came out from the nuclear field, and... Like, even today, most of that information, it was like a speed rush through. 
in the 1940s to develop this bomb, to understand it so they can use it and kill as many people. That research is now being used to save millions more. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Even there is a uh, medical nuclear medical research uh, center in South Sydney known as the Ansto facility. Um, really fascinating place. Very low yield um, radiation. But they started developing new things like um, they send out most of the isotopes for the Asia-Pacific region for, for medical use. And they actually doubled the half-life of some of these materials because they're so essential. They would, they would, um, but they would decay on the flight over. So they said, well, you only get half what you ordered by the time it gets there. Yeah. So we had to develop new things. This research, none of this would exist without us dropping that bomb or at least researching how to drop that bomb, which is just awful to say. But it is without that money being thrown in to win a war, we would not have seen the level of chemotherapy and uh, radiotherapy there. Like x-rays, again, came out of this. This is the understanding of radiation. It's, it's, it's a core fundamental part of the medicine field. Again, saving, saving millions, uh, sorry, killing millions, saving billions. That's, that's literally what it is. Yeah. Um, and also not just in the medical field as well, but smoke alarms like americium 241. I know it's just, this is different. Yeah. You know, it's a much lower scale, but, it but takes detecting fires in a house yeah. using those principles and those concepts because of terrible nuclear war, atomic yeah. bombs, um, is the reason that came into fruition. Yeah. And it's that pressure that drives us to get there. Again, we're seeing it over and over again. Mm. And it's amazing how all these different topics are coming together and we're seeing the same trend across all of them. Yeah, it was um, it was the last World War. But I think I'll throw over to James for, I believe, something from the First World War again. Let's go back to World War One. Let's boys. go back, back in time. To the portal. So I'm going to take you to the very, very beautiful piece but also awful technology called the gun. Uh. Now, we still see the gun used in the modern day by the police force and um, you know other, other armed forces and the armies mm. and whatnot. It's what yeah. you most commonly and, see. And random people as well. Yeah, which, you, is you the one, which is the one I'm most uh, uncomfortable with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah a people. little bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but boys, guns used to have problems of their own. Um, and Paddy, mm. I want you to try and guess what is the biggest problem you think you could have just with using a gun and what could happen over time to that gun? Rust? Well, that's one aspect of it, but it wasn't the main issue they were having. It was actually erosion problems oh. they had with guns. Now... With gun barrels, what erosion is? It's like when things warp and they, you know, you look look what's happening at, at the beaches right now with the sea levels rising. <clears throat> That's just called like nat- natural erosion mm-hmm. um, because it's being destroyed. So guns sort of got destroyed, the gun barrels, because what happens is when you fire a gun, there's a lot of heat that sort of goes through. So that heat combined with friction over time causes the gun to erode. Think of it like your car muffler after a while. Yes. At the start, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After a while, it's a bit warpy. That's, so, I guess, what's happening so with the guns. So after time was weather, and because of that, the trajectory of the bullet yeah. will like go backwards well, if I mean, necessary. At manufacture, a gun is an incredibly precise thing. It's got a rifling where the inside of the barrel's twisted, so the bullet spins, mm-hmm. and that keeps that bullet going straight. If you lose that rifling even a little bit, that bullet is nowhere going to hit its target, yeah. which is just awful. Uh, absolutely. Um, and that's exactly what the issue was. British uh, military started noticing they were so off target with their shots, even though the guns were designed with such perfect precision. So they tasked a bloke called Harry Brearley, a metallurgist, to try and find out the solution to this. So he started getting steel and he started throwing things into it, like chromium and mixing it together. Different alloys. Just different alloys and trying to find out what worked and what didn't work. And it got to the point where he was like, nothing is working. Like, you, you can't get much better than what we've got. So he got his like little adventures and he threw them in a scrapyard. And he was like, I'm fucking done. I'm over it. And then went on... I give to, up. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much went on for months. And then 
you know, obviously looked outside and was like, wait a minute. I've left this outside for months and there yeah. is not a little inch of rust on this. And I bet it would stand out too because everything around it would have everything been so have, rusted yeah. and red and like orange and brown and then... Metal rusts so easily. And then you just see this metal, right? Perfect. This, this vibranium perfect. just come out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty, Pretty much, yeah in, those, yeah, in those days. So he pulled it back and he was just like, okay, I, I haven't directly solved the issue, but I have found a metal that doesn't rust. So he's gone back to his boss and he's going, look, boss, I found a, a literally a steel that we can now use that doesn't rust. And the boss just goes, I don't fucking care. Like I, I told you to make something that, that doesn't, doesn't weather. Uh... Like you've just found, and he's just like, this is one of the most amazing inventions. And the boss like just said, no, don't want to hear about it. So he ended up leaving um, that faction and was like, I'm, I'm resigning. Like I'm heartbroken, man. So um, yeah, and then he ended up, channeling it into another sort of business, another faction, and then became a massive success. And gentlemen, this technology is oh known as stainless steel. Oh, right. What we use for our cutlery, what we use for car parts, what we use for building blocks, um, what we use for... I can't even think of it because it's used in so many different um, you know, faculties. And it's the most 100% recyclable materials that is used for common applications. Even surgery, like we're talking about med the medical field, it's used for surgical tools, right? Because to perform surgery, you obviously don't want rust because you mm. don't want that going into your bloodstream or whatever, whatever. I'm not a medical professional, but that's my guess. So, but you've got these clean tools. Like I've had forks that in 30 years we've had them. They don't get a single stain and that's how it got its name because it's stainless steel. It just gets. Absolutely brilliant. And like you would think, right? So at the time, and this is World War One, right? World War One, yeah. yeah. World War One. So World War One, post-industrial world, everything is in vats and pipes, but all this shit corrodes and breaks down. Yeah, you've now found something that, like, just replaces all of it. Every single vat of vodka or beer is in a stainless steel vat. We wouldn't vat. have beer. We wouldn't have the... the no, no. We the would quality have, of we would beer. Have beer. We wouldn't have the quality and quantity of beer today without this invest, invest, invention. Jesus. Well, that's a thing. Like, it's also an investment. Yes, it's a massive think, investment. Beer would be a lot more expensive if it wasn't for this because they'd have to keep it in airtight spaces to avoid oxygen and they mm. would need cleaning procedures to get all the water and the salt off. Um, whereas now you've got stainless steel and it just doesn't corrode. Like yeah. it, I mean, it does in very, very high salt water contents. When it, and then you've got to scratch it for it to... To take off the There's so many there, steps yeah. compared to you could just leave metal it's um, such a reliable in the piece. sun and it yeah. just rust. I just find that absolutely brilliant. And that wasn't so much because of, of... the. I guess it was the pressure of war, but it wasn't so much that, shit, this is happening. We have to do something now. It was yeah. just like, look, it's not too much of an issue because we can just keep making new guns and uh, just wait until they start eroding. Yeah. It was like, see what you can do in the next in the next few months. And the fact that it didn't actually solve the problem, um, but it did something completely different. And this is what we're seeing with yeah. all these different topics. We're seeing things that are directly related, like the blood bank. We're seeing things that are indirectly related. And we're seeing things that didn't solve the problem, but solved another problem. Mm. Again, because of the pressure of warfare. I have a question, though, about this guy. What was his name again? Uh, Harry Brilly, I believe. Harry. So did Hazard, did he get any money because of this? Like, did he sell it on or do or like... Take the process with him, and then yeah, did he Edison it? <laughs> uh, he won. Exactly, he exactly. he won some sort of an award, but it wasn't it, it wasn't in like um any amazing like it wasn't like a Nobel Prize. Yeah. He'd be spewing because like, that. like oh that, that 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 could be like some, pain that. that could be some dynasty but, shit there. But the thing is, right, a lot of the things that are the most revolutionary in this world, AC power, for example, penicillin, mm. they were released without patent because yeah. the principle 
would have been discovered either way. There's no way yeah. one person could own that. But to have recognition, I think, is important. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There are some... I know there's like... I know, I- Ikea, yeah, I know, I know Ikea has a patent for a specific type of chair. I mean, that's one thing. But imagine having a patent for all chairs. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, stainless steel by definition is like steel with 11% minimum chromium, right? 12.4% to be exact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So imagine imagine that's like, actually, you can't um, have any stainless steel in your factory unless you pay me $20 a month. (laughs) Unless you pay me, Mr. Steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, stainless steel prime account. (laughs) Let's just have like an annual subscription for this. And so before we move on, it's good to end it with some historical facts. So between 1919 and 1923, Stainless steel was used in surgical scapels, tools, and cutlery in Sheffield. In 1925, a stainless steel tank was used to store nitric acid, therefore establishing the fact that this unique metal resists corrosion. Nitric acid it was the first metal yeah. tank that could store fucking acid. In 1926, the first surgical implants made of stainless steel were performed. In 1930s, the first stainless steel train was built in the USA. 31, the first stainless steel aircraft. Acceleration. 35, stainless steel kitchen sinks were widely used. In 54, stainless steel underwater TV camera was manufactured. <laughs> 66, Damn. first tidal power station with stainless steel turbine blades was completed in France. In the 80s, stainless steel was used to build the longest movable flood barrier in the world on River Thames. Jesus. All these like scales oh, just growing yeah. and growing from surgical implants to a flood barrier. Yeah, it's not for essential to, hey, what can we do with this? <laughs> this <laughs> That's incredible. Like, it's such a core part. Like, I can look around my house right now and, like, point out things as stainless steel. Mm, that um, is. Yeah, yeah. That one is, Patty. That over there. That yeah. one. No, yeah. I'm, talking Paul... about, I'm talking about your head. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, didn't yeah, you yeah. get that brain transplant, bro? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't get into a fight. You'll break your hands. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but we'll, um, that's a fantastic point. Wrap that one and Patricio hit us up. All right. I don't know anymore if this actually was made during the war, but it was made because of someone's influence in the war. Ah, interesting. Okay, so what is one thing now that we're all afraid of? You open these open-ended questions. Very open-ended. Spiders, snakes. um, Bears, lions, tigers. uh, upcoming time of death. Myself. Uh, Depression. Um, Um, Buses that are pink. Uh Nuclear bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah, AI. Non-stainless steel. Oh, AI. 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 Ooh. Oh, that is a very common fear these days, especially in the futuristic utopia. Exactly. AI so technology. I'm talking about I'm talking about a man that I think everyone's known mainly for the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch played him in the 2014 movie The Imitation Game. So that was a ah. biopic about a guy called Alan Turing, and he was a famous and very... It was like a posthumously decorated mathematician, computer theorist, cryptologist, and on the team... That was on, that was that sole job during World War Two was to break the Enigma code, and I feel like you you're kind of like the the World what's, War Two what's, what's an Enigma history. Code? Uh, so, so Sean, yeah, yeah. So the Enigma code was a development in World War Two by the Germans. So in World War One, the whole movie of nineteen no, um, nineteen seventeen, yeah. where it was because they didn't have communication, they had to have runners move between fronts. Um, the development of communication means that you could organize and position troops faster you don't need any delay it's instantaneous the problem is the enemy can hear it too yeah so the enigma code was a way for um central command in germany in uh in berlin to communicate with troops boats everything so all attack Mm. all coordination goes through the enigma code 
using so, what using what device? Yeah. So the um, it was Enigma the, machine. Enigma so machine. it was like yeah. oh, kind okay. of a, kind of kind of picture a typewriter. However, it's also connected to cables within it. So just because you press the letter E doesn't necessarily it's going to mean E. It could be depending on how you uh, program the cables within it. The E could mean an R. The E could mean an H. So okay. it will spell out a different and word. Only the Germans knew the Enigma code. They knew the specific settings, and they right. would change those settings every single day. So basically, you would have like, like the twenty-four mo- hours. You would have like crack t- maximum twenty-four. No, actually, less than twenty-four hours because like the way that the the movie kind of says it is like from like six a.m. to midnight. They have that time to crack the code, yeah. or f- for that day. Yeah, right. And you know, just wasn't Alan Turing. It was uh, other teams were doing it. There was people in uh, in uh, in France. There was people in uh, the USA. There's people all over the world trying to figure out. Even the Russians were trying to figure out. But this UK team, fam- most famous member Alan Turing, uh, came up with something called Bomb. And it was like so, bomb with an e at the end, and that was like boom, boom, boom. boom. Thank you. Yeah, as a French and, that, say, and that was a. <laughs> Sort of imagine all these dials on a wall, and it just maybe so it's almost like a row, like rows and columns of all these circular dials with numbers on them, and you would implant a specific uh, code or whatever. And the ideal situation situation is you'll put the right code in, and it will crack the code. And they finally were able to do that. This has nothing to do with the Turing machine that everyone thinks it is. It's mm. something completely different. However, the Turing machine that Alan Turing theorized is a theoretical machine that could that is basically the first theory of a computer where it is a machine that can come up and calculate different codes and calculate yeah. different uh equations using ones and zeros and that sort of thing and so is there a way they were listening to what the germans were sending over there oh you can see you, you, can, you can hear yeah, yeah it's literally morse code so you could get every bit of information yeah. that the germans have but um, it would be like you're playing a game of Chinese whispers, except you're on the other side of the room. So to like, to like, so I guess dumb it down a bit. It was like going onto like a walkie-talkie or a radio channel and hearing what people were saying over that yeah. one channel. No, it's like if two friends, I would say, is um, they made up their own language yeah. and they're talking to each other in front of you, perfect, perfectly. They're saying exactly what they need to say to but, each other, but and you're language, there going, yeah. "What the hell?" Yeah, but yeah. My, my question is, how were the British hearing what the Germans were saying when they were well, in different parts of the world? It's all on the radio waves. It's, it's all so, on okay, so that's what I was trying to... Yeah. Uh, radio waves, to. like secret yeah. messages they have stolen. So there was... Yeah. Ma- like Telephone wires. The, there, was, there was an unlimited amount of codes and messages, but there was just no way to, to decode them until this finally happened. Spoiler alert, they found the code, they won the war. End of story. However, because of this and also the the Turing machine that he theorized, he also came up with in 1950, Alan Turing published a paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And in that paper was the first idea of artificial intelligence. And through that, it was like, like he envisioned a time when artificial intelligence, AI, would be a reality. But how could you know if that machine was intelligent? So he then came up with the idea of how is something intelligent? And his idea Mm -hmm. was imagine a judge and the judge is looking over a man or a woman and or just a person in general and the other person is a machine and if that machine beats that person that is artificial intelligence i mean i guess that's one metric yeah yeah, yeah but, but if it's calculations like my calculator can beat me that's <laughs> for sure well technically that's artificial intelligence then it is absolutely not i think it is <laughs> that is not how the <laughs> test works actually interesting so yeah so turing is the father of mons uh, of computer science do you know what the turing test was also called james it was no. called the imitation game. Okay. So that's why that 
that game is you play a game versus a human versus a computer. If the computer can beat you, that's AI. Yeah, right. The imitation game because if you can imitate a human, I do. You are. I do want to stress. It's like it's like the Akinator as well. Yeah, I, I do want to stress this though because I feel like people get confused by this. Alan Turing didn't invent the computer. He didn't. He invented the theory of what a computer could be. That person yeah. and that no, and that title of the person actually made the computer is John von Neumann. He built the first stored programming computer. That makes yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, it's like I feel like everyone kind of like, oh, Alan Turing, he invented no, he he, he started. He, he started. It was a lot of, he, it was he, a lot he, of he is the father of computing power. However, if you're gonna say say it right, because also the movie gets it wrong, where everyone's like, oh, that machine, that's the yeah. Turing machine. No, it was only a theory. It was never like he put some of that theory into the machine of just trying to compute the specific code. Very smart. Like I'm, I'm trying to imagine like uh, radio waves picking up and dials like turning to where they needed to be. No, just no, so simple cable. no, no, no. So yeah. they would, they would just get the code and the code would just be in like A German or ones or zeros or whatever. And then they will put those specific and they would try and decipher that code to the best of they, the best that they can and, what it meant, and then put yeah. those numbers in the machine themselves. Right. Yeah. Okay, no, I see or what you're the saying. Yeah, technically. Yeah. yeah, so I guess the machine that's in the movie, and I think the, the, the movie doesn't do justice because there's no. a huge team that developed and broke the movie. There was like... And they kind of focused on touring and like three or four people around him. Yeah. No, there's, there was like hundreds. Yeah. But the machine itself is more like a calculator, right? It's input-output. But it was the first one. And imagine, like, if you look... My dad used to sell computers. My, sorry, my granddad used to sell computers. A eight-megabyte storage drive was the size of a truck. Yeah. Back in the, the 70s, 80s, when he was he was starting these out, and he was like, well, IMDb really want... Uh, IMB, sorry, IMB, uh, IBM yeah. really needs this storage, just whole eight megabytes, mm-hmm. like, um, back in the day. So imagine that was in, like, the 60s, 70s. Imagine the technology and the size of this computer would have been, this no, machine. In the 40s. Computer, it's a machine, sorry. Yep. In the 40s. Yeah. Before you had semiconductors, before you had advancements, everything would be, like, Every- everything wiring. Everything was me- mechanical yeah, relays. No LEDs, yeah. massive, chunky machines. Like huge, no LEDs. How are you gonna like? How can you make it look cool? No, not just that, but just to to signify if something's working. LEDs are so yeah. core to like, and that's el- electronics. I days. guess that, that that was the start of the macro scale of computers when they used just like massive relays to send signals. Whereas now we're moving into the nanoscale. Yeah, yeah. We're midway through the nanoscale. Did, I don't know what comes next. Did you know that? So in your phone is more more technology than the entire U.S. Air Force had, if you combine all their planes, ships, and tanks. In World War Two. Well, if you were to shrink yourself to the size of the electrics mm-hmm. in your phone, and you were to go inside your phone, you'd be in a universe. That's what it yeah. would look like. Yeah, it's incredibly. Be like Ant Man. Yeah. Going into the quantum realm. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We, Thank. Uh, yeah. Qu- let's, the quantum realm's a theory. Anyway, let's leave that to Marvel. All right, yeah. Last one, Sean. Last kick us one. off. Okay, so I'm kind of moving back in uh, back into the future, um, and so this is kind of uh, to the eighties. A bit of a natural symptom of. Uh, the the atomic bomb, so the idea of no more conflict because of MAD, right? So after that happened, right, the US and USSR were having a bit of a like a flex. They wanted to show each other which was more powerful, but they couldn't go out and full out war like they had done previously. So they had to develop a new war, a colder war, crispier war, a revolutionized war, or just known a, as the Cold a War. Freezing okay, war. Yeah. A yeah, freezing yeah. war. So depending on who you ask, the Cold War started in 1947, post-World War II, and ended around 1991 with the fall of, um, uh, with the, the 
dissolving. Berlin, Berlin Wall. No, 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 no. So I mean, some people say Berlin Wall, which is that, earlier. That was I feel like that was the spiritual end. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't the physical. When, when the division yeah. of North yeah, yeah. and South Korea. Yeah, I think some people say in like late 1991 when the USSR dissolved, that was the end because they didn't actually fight a war of blood and soldiers. They fought an economic war, right? Yeah. They said, "I'm going to beat you to the moon." Imagine that if wars were decided by like. Um, a race, literally. You know, like, but but robots. Imagine he had to like robot wars. You know that TV show where you have yeah. robots in. Imagine if world conflict was decided by that. Way more interesting. I feel like I feel like sports uh, do a yeah, good yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that, Let's have state of origin, that... so we don't actually have to have New South Wales versus Queensland in real life. Let's just settle it in rugby league. No, well, that's, yeah. that's what that's what happened in uh, the eighties. Like so many of those like eighties movies were mm. about like the bad guy was Russian. Like there's like Red Dawn. Yeah. Rocky is it Rocky Four where he's fighting like Ivan Ivan Drago? It's yeah. like that. Bro, if that's not patriotism right there, being like Americans versus the Russians, like yeah, come yeah, yeah. on. Like, I mean, the, the the fear of the communist red was really big back in the day. I mean, yeah. to a degree, there still is that lingering fear. But the the whole point of this war was they they couldn't fight open conflicts. They can have proxy wars like Vietnam, um, but they couldn't have direct. Um, war. So they said, all right, we're going to race you to the moon. We're going to beat you economically. We're going to prove our system of government, our system of thinking makes more money and survives better than yours. And capitalism in the end did win Um, uh, for better or for worse. Um, But one of the ways they proved how their prowess economically was this race to the, the moon. And so they developed NASA. So NASA, National Aeronautical Space Agency, um, Mm -hmm, the US, mm -hmm. which oversaw everything. And at this time, the Russians had a head advance. The moment World War II ended, Russia and US were rushing in to steal all the nuclear, uh, the the rocket scientists that were developing the rockets for the Germans and took them back. A lot of the people in the NASA team that got the Apollo mission there, Germans from World War II, Nazi-loving Germans. Yeah, little um, turn your eye away from ethics to win a war kind of thing. Um, But the whole... You'd hope. You'd hope they weren't as Nazi as they, they were in the past. I mean, if you're building the V2 rocket to hit London from Berlin, and you, they say, oh, this is useful. Do you want to hit the moon now? Uh, yeah, okay. But the point being is the, like, the NASA itself was designed to oversee everything, and it was like super tight um, in terms of information, and it was like a lot of espionage in between. But NASA as a whole, because it had so much money thrown at it to try and win this economic war to prove that they were better... They got the best and smartest minds together in another example of big science. And so, so many good things have come out of the NASA laboratories, JPL and NASA themselves. And so, it was really interesting because I went through a few different things um, that NASA developed. So, uh, I'll, I'll just do like a, a quick like fly through because there's so many, right? A little right? quick fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, in the early 1960s, they realized that their pilots kept dying or get really badly injured when they hit the ground too hard. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, they would come back on their planes and just go bang went. They actually hurt and they'll break bones or just straight up kill the pilot, which was awful. Um, and so they said, we need to develop a material that sorry, mm. stops this or at least absorbs some of that impact. And so they started researching softer and like cheap material to make, which then became memory foam. Yeah. <laughs> memory foam, which you most, a lot of beds these days still mm. use memory foam, derived to try and save their, their pilots. Interesting, in the 70s, they, um, the, uh, uh, what was it, the Houston Cowboys? No, Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. One of the NFL teams Dallas in the early Cowboys, 70s, yeah. they started getting too many head knocks. They started putting uh, memory foam, the the same stuff they used in the crashes oh, to absorb the to shock. absorb the yeah. shock, yeah, okay. which I think they should still continue doing. I think that, I think they do. Like the, the helmets yeah, are pretty much patterned now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, that, there's, that microphones them and everything now. Yeah, I mean, 
that being said, the the number of people who get dementia by the age of fifty in, yeah. in all contact sport is ridiculous. But a- another point, um, another technology that NASA so developed. Y- y- oh, sorry, go on with the technologies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there was um so JPL, so the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, they started getting these pictures. So imagine the the the, the camera you would have had in the nineteen sixties. Now that camera, even at the most expensive range, trying to take photos of the sky, gonna look like shit. Even if you look at like the Hubble telescope versus the James Webb telescope, the quality is so much better in like ten years. So again, we're not bashing Hubble. We're not bashing Hubble. I mean, yeah, yeah. JWT is on the shoulders of giants, right? So like, yeah, absolutely progressing through. But imagine the camera back in the '60s, the best camera you could have got. It's gonna take shit photos, right? So they went, all right. We can't get a better camera until like we advance it. Maybe we can develop software that makes the picture look better. This enhancing technology, um, just so they can see the stars a bit better and like research more. That same software is now used <laughs> when looking at um, uh, diagnosing people with blocked arteries and heart attacks. It's called Arteria Vision. In the mid 1960s, they used the same software to look at stars to realize actually we can see better into people's bodies, and then we can identify the problems with it and cure them. I because thought, they went, oh, well, it's free software. Yeah, so yeah. might as well. I, I thought you were going to say, it was like, oh, that, that, because of that, they invent the enhance the enhanced button that Law & Order now uses. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> so that enhanced button, that, and a CIS, that, uh, that, uh, CSS Miami, uh, Law & Order, SUV, all of that enhance. Zoom in. That effectively is what they developed. To say, here's a shitty picture, let's make it look better. And then now, now they're actually using it to cure people. I mean... Not a direct conflict and not a real war thing compared but to other like, things. But it's like, hey, I want to be better than you. No, I'm better than you. We now know the whole entire galaxy in a fucking image thanks to the JWST. Mm. And not just space, but extending beyond that as well. Mm. I feel like this is almost like a weird sibling rivalry that happened during the Cold War band. Like, say, oh, we're going to do this better. No, I can do it better. I can do this better. No, I can do this better. So it's like a weird back and forth and nothing only... I feel like competition and like that sort of thing only Mm. good not i feel like in this case it's a bit of a stretch but you know good things happen in competition because you're pushing yourself you're pushing the boundaries you're pushing limits that shouldn't that in this case are literally you wouldn't do it yourself exactly motivation there exactly so the motivation is not we have to beat that team we like we have to win yeah well that's the thing right so if that competition wasn't there you wouldn't have thrown money at it exactly which is and when we say talk competition we're talking about Fallout War, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is the this, this shame. It's just a, well, a I feel like Cold War wasn't a Fallout. It was absolutely a Fallout. Uh, didn't the Cold War, war just have like multiple wars within it though that built up? No, like, no, no, the no, v- Vietnam was... War, for example. No, so that's a proxy conflict, not a war for me. Mm. Okay, but it happened during the period of Cold War, and it was yeah. You know, so I would a say subsidy of it's, that. It's a sub part of it. That's why I'm saying which is what conflict. Yeah, that's what I'm alluding yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Mm. But the whole idea was we're gonna beat you. But we can't shoot no, but you like, or I drop feel bombs. Like, but like the NASA, like what you're referring yeah. to is like the NASA. Right? This was like oh, this was a war of intelligence. This was a war of uh, almost like oh, it's basically it's almost like the first ever big dick contest. Honestly, I see. I don't think it's a war of intelligence because they they had. I mean, intelligence can be found anywhere. It was a war of money. Money discovers the intelligence. You can't. You can get the smartest person in the room, but if you don't have them raised right or give them the right facilities, they're not going to do anything with it. You need to support them through it. NASA started getting all this money come through. Naturally, some amazing inventions came out of well, it. Well, that's so exactly what we're talking about. What yeah. This whole entire yeah. podcast is the money that's been funded yeah. to push these inventions through only came about because of the pressure on war. And we're not saying war's good. It's fucking terrible. But like, if we use that same amount of funding for everyday you know, use, then we'd be 
perfect. You know, that we'd be able to find things so much quicker. Yeah. So I'll just go through the last few of them and then we'll go back to that point. So um, I thought this one was really, really cute. So in the late 1970s, this, um, this person named Adam Kisser Jr. who was working in NASA's Kennedy Space Station. Um, and he, he was hearing impaired. I mean, when you're looking for the best and brightest, disabilities don't matter, right? You're looking at, can you get the job done? Fine. Um, and so they clearly got the best people, but he was hearing impaired and he started realizing it was actually getting in the way of his work. So he started like taking chunks off like space probes and uh, telemetry and research and vibration sensors and developed the first cochlear implant so he could hear better at work. And then went, oh my God, are you kidding? You've now cured like hearing for so nerve, many nerve people. Damage, yeah. yeah. And so like that, it was a huge one. Um, and I'll just rattle off a few other ones here. So scratch resistant glasses. They used to use just normal glass, but for your normal glasses and whatnot. But after a while, they would break and crack into your eye and just make you blind. So they started developing like um, scratch-resistant glasses, which don't fracture and break into your eye. Um, so another one that they talked about is the life shears, which you may know is the jaws of life. Effectively, it's those things that um, first responders use to pry open cars. Small little devices that you can stick into between metal and it rips the door off without... Killing people. So that was developed because the um, the pressure inside required to make that kind of gap of metal it needs to be massive, right? It's the same technology they use on the decoupling of the space rockets because they needed something small and light because every kilo in space is super expensive. You're look, looking mm. at like $15,000 a kilo to get yeah. something into outer space. So you needed to make your rockets as light as possible. So they needed something super light, super portable, and could like do the job to yeah. decouple a fucking rocket from another one you're talking about hundreds of like like several hundred tons so they developed this really portable like technology and that just became the way that you started using it, it, was, it the u.s called them life shares and they became really really important during the 9-11 attacks in the world trade center um they cleared out so much um and the final one was they needed to get water to the astronauts and keep it recycled so they developed one of the first um water filters known as the microbial check valve which is a sorry not water filters in general but one of the most core ingredients to modern water filtering. Yeah, to make sure water doesn't backflow, essentially. Mm. Yeah. This, this has James written all over it. Why yeah. aren't you talking about water filters, mate? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's he, only one factor. Well, that's the thing, right? How did a space agency trying to beat Russia develop a water filter? Like, that's, for me, wild, how these little things have come through. And I, I really want to circle back to James' point, because he started bringing it up, and it is a really good one. We're not saying that this technology wouldn't have been developed in time. It would have been developed at a slower rate. It would have. The necessity to win war has pushed funding into these technologies, which is, um, which is disappointing. Because imagine if, instead of spending money on wars and on conflict, we could put it straight into research. Mm. I mean... Yeah. So we, we talk about the um, our science agencies, the CSIRO in Australia. Um, they started developing for about $20 million an identification of certain waves to transfer information, which was then known as Wi-Fi, which I know for a fact has outweighed the cost of $20 million. But at the time, no one would have thought Wi-Fi would have become what it is. But the idea behind it, if we invest into something not with the goal to make money but with the goal of like noble pursuit we could advance the human civilization so much faster thanks for listening to see more engineering dad's content like this head to our youtube facebook instagram and tiktok and i'll link below to see our other projects have a good one